Good morning, sisters and brothers. Uh, you all have a double dose of Johnston this morning. Uh, my name is Virginia Johnston. I am the wife of Sky Johnston, who brought us our children's sermon this morning. Thank you. Um, we've been a part of Faith Covenant for a couple of years now, and we are just so thankful to be a part of this body. And today, I have the joy and privilege of talking with you about hope, specifically the radical hope of a kingdom marked by justice and righteousness, where we are free to flourish and never be afraid. This is a very real kingdom with a king who is called the Lord, our righteous savior. But first, I'd like to begin with a bit of context. If we recall, Jake, a couple weeks ago, introduced us to Jeremiah's commission as a prophet. God says to him, see, today I appoint you over the nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. The majority of the book of Jeremiah is concerned with uprooting and tearing down, destroying and overthrowing. So I'm so grateful to Jake and Tom for preaching those difficult passages. Um, so that today we can look together at the seeds of hope that Jeremiah plants with the exiles to build them up, to assure them that God has not forsaken them, even in exile. And so I want to begin by trying to help us sit with these exiles in Babylon. If we want to truly understand the hope that God prepared for them through his prophet, the means of building and planting that God sent them into exile with, we need to understand their experiences. And as we sit with these exiles, it's my hope that we can join them in their raw state of grief, having been thoroughly uprooted and torn down, destroyed and overthrown, and in so doing, receive with them God's radical message of hope. In 2 Kings 23 through 25, we can read a record of what transpired in the destruction of Jerusalem, what the exiles and even Jeremiah himself lived through. The city of Jerusalem had been surrounded by the Babylonian army for two years, cutting off their food supply. The famine within the city became so great that the final Judean king, Zedekiah, and his army broke out of the walls and fled under the cover of night. They were captured shortly after by the Babylonian army. Zedekiah was tortured and taken captive back to Babylon. With the king and his army captured, King Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian army easily entered the city, burning every important building, setting fire to the temple. And all the utensils that Solomon had commissioned for use in the temple were carried off and placed in the temple of King Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian god. All of the bronze pillars in the temple were broken up, taken back to Babylon. Their sacred space was not only destroyed, it was desecrated. Every wall around the city was leveled. All the people who managed to survive the famine and the invasion were carried into exile, except for the very poorest who were left to tend the fields and the vineyards outside the city. The exiles were given new names, put in the service of the Babylonian king, and re-educated as Babylonians. The people of Jerusalem witnessed the complete destruction of their sacred space, of their home, and they were subjected to the cultural genocide, which was typical of these kinds of ancient Near Eastern invasions. The experience must have been absolutely shattering to the core. But God does not leave the exiles to despair. 
He assures them that they are his sheep. He is their shepherd, and he gives them this hope. I'll just... The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous savior. God tells them that a new and better king is coming who will provide a new and better safety. And he will be called by the personal name of God, Yahweh. The Lord, our righteous Savior, will combine a reign of righteousness and justice with the salvation of true and lasting peace. For the rest of our time together, I want to look at the three elements of the name given to the righteous branch, which are three aspects of the hope given to the exiles. And we will see that the hope which God gave 2,500 years ago is the same hope that we're called to live in today because it's a hope anchored in God himself. So the first thing we'll look at is that God gives them the hope of a new and better king, the Lord, our righteous Savior. A kingship was not original to God's plan for his people. In 1 Samuel 8, we read of Israel asking Samuel to anoint for them a king. The Israelites wanted a king so they could be like other nations. They wanted a strong man to go out and fight their battles for them. The terrible irony is, of course, that Israel is quite simply not like other nations, exactly because they are the covenant people of the creator God of the universe. And he goes before them, and he fights their battles. This request was a clear rejection of God as their personal and unmediated king. But in God's grace and condescension, he gave them the institution of a king to serve as a figurehead and a mediator of his rule, even as he warned them it would not go well. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, as so many of the kings before him, was an unjust king. We read in Jeremiah 22, that he spent his reign building a fancy palace through forced labor. And Jeremiah asks him, does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? In other words, does wealth validate your reign? Because a king of Israel should be marked by God's justice and righteousness, fighting for the poor and oppressed by promoting peace and prosperity for the land. This was not Jehoiakim's passion. But even though he was corrupt and oppressive and unjust, the people of Judah hoped in him anyway. And the false prophets assured them that he would bring peace and prosperity. Jehoiakim was a strong man. He had stood up to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. But as we saw earlier, the king proved to be thoroughly unworthy of their hope. God, however, promises the exiles a new and better king. He invites them to hope in a king marked by justice and righteousness rather than wealth. This king will rule with God's perfect wisdom and justice, as a king of Israel should. In Jeremiah's words, a king should do what is just and right, rescue from the hand of the oppressor the one who has been robbed, do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood. God promises the exiles the coming of a righteous king who will do just that. Sisters and brothers, we know that king. 
We know the glory of his humble rule. And yet, I wonder what strong men we are still tempted to hope in for our peace and our justice, and what we may compromise for such victory. Where are we hoping in someone other than King Jesus himself to go out and fight our battles for us? Political figures, lawyers, military, law enforcement, school administrators, workplace officials. These are all important earthly offices and figures and can surely be means of God's mediating his righteous rule. But God is our only hope of justice and righteousness, and his rule is never achieved by oppressive or exploitative means. His rule is only present in so much as his passion for uh, and so much of his passion is made manifest, rescuing people from the hands of oppressors, resisting violence or wrongdoing to the weak or marginalized, the foreigner, the widow, the orphan. God has given us this king, and our hope in anything else will be shown to be hollow. Next, God gives them the hope of a new and better protection the Lord, our righteous Savior. In Hebrew, the word city, ear, is by definition a community enclosed by a wall. The word does not at all reference the size of the community as it does in our modern language. It's merely a reference to the wall encircling the community. But a city was not God's design for his people either. His design was a garden filled with water and fruit trees not closed off by walls. Genesis 4 tells us that our brother Cain, the first human to shed innocent blood, was the inventor of the city. And the cities that follow in the Old Testament are not pictured positively, but as places of violence and immorality. The secure walls are a defining feature of the city of Jerusalem, making it the envy of the ancient Near East. Now those of you who have been to Jerusalem know this far better than I do. Um, but the city of Jerusalem was built on high ground, surrounded on three sides by very deep valleys, and the walls encircling the city are incredibly thick, like eight feet thick, 40 feet high. The city has its own water source inside, though it still had to bring in most of its food, which was grown outside the city gates. The walls were used for protection, to keep other kingdoms out, and they were incredibly effective. But just as the king proved to be a hollow as their strong man of justice, the city proved to be a shallow hope for safety as well. For two years, the city was encircled by the Babylonian army, cutting off the food supply. The walls, ironically, ended up getting broken out of from the inside when the famine got so bad that the king broke out and ran for his life under the cover of night. The walls became a trap for the people rather than a source of safety and comfort. The king God promised would be a savior, providing lasting and permanent peace for the sheep. A peace not ensured by walls, but by the love and tender care of the shepherd himself. Again, what do we hope in for our security? Where do our anchors lie? Our wealth, our health, our zip code? If hope is anywhere other than God himself, our hope will be put to shame. Finally, the third aspect of hope that God offers is the hope of himself as their savior king. 
the Lord, our righteous Savior. The righteous branch promised by God bears the precious personal name of God himself, Yahweh. Just as God shows the exiles through dramatic events, the futility of hoping in earthly kings and walls, he concurrently gives them a place to anchor their hope for justice and security, which will never disappoint, God himself. The righteous branch will be called Yahweh, and he will be their king, and he will be their savior, and that hope is sure. The exiles could never have dreamed of how this would be fulfilled. But this side of the cross, we have seen how God has abundantly fulfilled that hope in the incarnate Christ, a human king, perfect in justice and righteousness, indwelled with all the fullness of God, who provided complete salvation, which can never be taken away. Sisters and brothers, what a joy it is to proclaim to you today Hope in God will never be put to shame, but will always be fulfilled in ways more glorious, more majestic, more tender, and more loving than we could ever imagine. I often hear in the Christian world something along these lines. Hey, you can play it safe and stay in the safety of this or that place or situation, or you can trust God and step out on faith and into some scary, dangerous place or situation. But hear this, I think based on the message of Jeremiah, this is a false dichotomy. It's true, placing your hope in God alone can feel vulnerable, but truly it is the safest place and really the only safe place you can ever possibly be. With your hope firmly anchored in him, God actually desires for us to feel safe, to know that our hope is sure anchored in him. And you can't hedge your bets. You can't sacrifice to Baal outside the temple and Yahweh inside the temple just to have your bases covered. It's very clear in Jeremiah 2.13. God says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. You can't drink from the spring of living water if you're off busy, busy digging your own backup cisterns. And those cisterns, they aren't going to hold water anyway. It might look like water in there. False prophets might tell you it's water, but it is nothing but toxic mud. Only God himself is our living water. He alone rules with justice and brings about salvation. Hope placed anywhere else is empty and it's dangerous. Radical hope in God alone is not for the brave and super spiritual. It's for you and for me, the scared, the timid, the exile. This is all through the Psalms and really the whole storyline of scripture. But if you want to look more, Psalm 46 is a particularly powerful example. So what does it actually look like to live in this hope? God in his grace gives the exiles a picture. Let's read from Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage 
so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. God tells Israel to go flourish. Go flourish. Not only does God have plans for a better king and a better city for them, but God is with them now and even in the midst of, uh, of exile. Their safety is found in him. He is the one who carried them into exile, and he is with them now. He invites them to live before him in prayer, and he encourages them to flourish in exile. This is radical. And do you know what this looks like? It looks like the book of Daniel. God is present with his people, protecting them even in exile. He closes the mouths of lions and prevents flames from consuming the faithful. He is our refuge and strength, our very present help in times of trouble. He's our hope. God's people are much safer in the storms of exile with their anchors of hope fixed surely on him than they ever were within the walls of Jerusalem, hoping in their earthly king. Sisters and brothers of the righteous branch himself, as we work diligently with Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit towards the full maturity of the kingdom of God, what does this hope offered to exiles look like for us? What does it mean for us to go flourish? The vision I have in my mind is this. Picture one person holding tight to an umbrella particularly powerful after the storm last night, perhaps, to stay dry in the midst of a violent rainstorm versus someone under a broad and wide picnic shelter staying dry from the same storm. Now imagine that the task before these two people is to prepare and serve lunch. Have you ever tried to do anything while holding an umbrella in a pouring wind and rainstorm? It's very difficult to stay dry under an umbrella, even when you're holding with two hands. But trying to do anything beyond that is nearly impossible. You'll get soaking wet. Now imagine the other person diligently preparing and serving lunch in the midst of the storm, under the shelter of the large pavilion, perhaps even having forgotten the rain is even there. And what if we add a third person to this image? The person who insists on gripping an umbrella over their head even while under the pavilion, just in case the pavilion should blow away or spring a leak. Because anyway, you wouldn't want to ask too much of the pavilion. Yes, it's sheltering that other person over there, but who knows if it can be trusted to shelter me as well. This third person has become ineffective at best for the task at hand and an umbrella-wielding hazard at worst to those in the pavilion. Sisters and brothers, I suggest to you that our place at the table of the king is under a broad and wide shelter. It's a place ruled by justice and righteousness. We are safe and dry, and our hands are wide open and free for the task at hand. Grab people out of the rain, serve one another with freedom and abandon. This is the sure hope of the Lord, our righteous Savior. Let's not fear the rain. Let's not carry backup umbrellas. Let's not seek out strong men or thick walls, fight crusades or culture wars, try to conjure up sunshine. Not only will that render us ineffective for the task at hand, but we will miss 
the beauty of receiving the special care of God that God offers as our shelter, our shepherd, and miss out on joining him in the beautiful work of the kingdom he calls us to. As we spend time together this summer discerning the vision for our church going forwards, let's keep ever before us the radical hope that we are part of a kingdom marked by justice and righteousness, where we are free to flourish and never be afraid. This is a very real kingdom with a king who's called the Lord our righteous savior, and he is the only hope that will not disappoint. <laughs>